Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free speech on college campuses. And Richard, a few days before you and I were recording this, there was an incident at Middlebury College, a private liberal arts school in Vermont, where a group of people, it seems best we can tell that only some of them were students, but probably not all of them, was protesting Charles Murray, the famed libertarian social scientist, and they not only prevented Murray from speaking, but they physically harassed him and his party, including injuring a faculty member who was actually there to serve as a moderator because she disagreed with Murray, and they were even intent on pursuing them to a dinner uh, that they had afterwards, so they had to relocate as a result of that. So before we even get into this broader trend and the principles at work here, Richard, let me just get your reaction to this incident, to what happened to Charles Murray. Well, what happens is when you get a group of individuals who are so sure that they are right with respect to the ultimate merits, they're always wrong with respect to the means that they use. They don't bother to inquire closely as to what's going on, and they seem to think that their indignation is a perfect warrant for them to use force in order to suppress and attack other individuals. This is not just a question of campus courtesy and parliamentary rules. These are criminal trespasses which are engaged by people either on the university or out. They're personal assaults against both uh, Charles Murray and the woman who was with him, and they should be not only university matters for expulsion, but they should also be police matters uh, for serious kinds of punishment. I mean, you know, if if the question of whether or not you can protect yourself, um, everybody in the world, by speech, everybody in the world will be perfectly immune if at the time they kill somebody they say, I hate you. Um, So what you can't do is allow the use of force, the threat of force to become speech. This has nothing whatsoever to do with internal university discipline, which raises very different questions. This is a matter of external aggression, and it ought to be dealt with very harshly and severely. And the fact that people are convinced that they're right is, if anything, a factor of aggravation because they're taking liberties with the lives and and property and uh, safety of others. It's not a factor in mitigation. So, Richard, this, of course, comes about a month after you had violent protests over Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a very different figure than Murray, a sort of provocateur. But he also identifies as broadly being on the right. He was with Breitbart at the time. So in those two examples, you've got Middlebury, you've got Berkeley, one private university, one public. How and to what extent, if there is one, do public and private institutions differ in their responsibilities when it comes to these sort of events, to speakers who might generate controversy? Well, to the extent that there are individuals who are coming in from outside and using force and aggression and intimidation, I don't think there's any difference. Um, This would be a criminal trespass if you came for these particular purposes on private land. It's a criminal trespass if you go to public lands in order to do it. It's a serious assault against the person if you do it on a public place for a public speaker and the same thing on a private side. I think when it comes to the rather simple proposition that no individual is entitled to use force or the threat of force to silence other individuals in the expression of their views, it's pretty much a solid universal and it doesn't admit to any kind of subtle variations. Now, uh, the other thing, of course, is I know Charles Murray very well and he's one of the most civil, decent human beings I've ever had the privilege to work with in my entire life. This other fellow seems to me to be beyond bad in terms of the way in which he behaves. But I think the way in which you respond to that difference is that you don't go to one, 
or you attack him in print if that's appropriate. I don't think that the differences in their terms of their associability or their decency um, is a difference which allows you to haul off on one against the other. Otherwise, we would have this ridiculous calculus in which every time that you found that somebody was either higher or lower on your scale of subjective values, it would either increase or reduce the amount of force, aggression, threats, and intimidation that you could use against them. So there are many, many differences, it seems to me, between these two cases, but none of them go to the question as to whether or not the use of force or the threat of force is appropriate under these circumstances. So Richard, right after the Berkeley riots, President Trump tweeted, those may be the three most foreboding words in the English language at the moment. He tweeted that maybe Berkeley shouldn't be getting federal funds if they weren't allowing what he defined as free speech on their campus. Do you think of this as a problem that needs to be addressed at least partially by public policy or is it more about the culture of the individual campuses? Well, I think of the sorts of things that we're talking about here are police matters and should be addressed that way. Um, lots of people think it's a nice and effective way to withhold funds from institutions that don't do things the way in which you want them to do, but they're just innumerable complications with this. The first one is it's not at all clear what the Berkeley police or the Berkeley University officials did. Many of the people at Berkeley came from off the campus. They seemed to be organized. There had been some preparations that were taken. They may not have been sufficient, but to say that these people people were invited on campus by Berkeley seems to me to be ridiculous. And after the event was done, I think the officials of the university made it very clear that they regarded this behavior as completely inappropriate, the way in which most of the faculty at Middlebury did in a piece that they wrote for the Wall Street Journal. So I, I think, in effect, you don't even have the case that these people are in any sense in collusion or in cooperation with the thugs in question. The other point, of course, is every time you decide to hold back money, you're not just getting the offenders, you're getting everybody else. Health. Berkeley gets probably hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to do physical science research, biochemical research, social science research, all sorts of other programs. Most of the people involved in these programs couldn't care less about what was going on on these other issues. And if they thought about them at all, they would be strongly opposed to what had happened to disrupt the campus. And so the same problem that you have in every other case, by withholding funds, what you do is you hit the innocent in order to get at the guilty, means that it's really a very, very difficult kind of approach. If you're going to use the fund position, you actually have to target a very narrow group, which you think to be the source of the difficulty. And if you can isolate that particular group, probably you have a case for much stronger sanctions. So that if you had, for example, somebody inside the campus who uh, ferreted out information to the rioters and the assailants that came in as to what the route was for people coming on campus, that would be a form of criminal behavior as well. It would be a betting or conspiracy, and you could punish them for that. So I think, as usual, the president is certainly within his rights to suggest all sorts of harebrained schemes, but I hope that everybody else has a little bit of a cooler head and doesn't want to follow him. Where should the line be on college campuses? Admittedly, these cases that we're talking about here that actually spiral out into violence are, are sort of outliers. But what about less severe circumstances like a, a heckler's veto where basically there's no violence but somebody isn't allowed to give their remarks because they're so consistently disrupted? Where should administrators be drawing the lines as to what kind of protest is allowable on campus? Well, these are sort of questions of internal decorum and I think that even if the heckler's veto is not a criminal act, if somebody 
is in a hall and other people come in, they agree to obey by the rules that are constant for these particular kinds of an arrangements. And that means when somebody engages in a heckless veto under the circumstances, it's probably either very serious civil conduct or maybe even criminal conduct because he's violating the social norms of the institution in question. There's no doubt that if you could remove these people by force without creating mayhem, you should be able to do so. And if not, I think afterwards, very serious sanctions should be imposed. Inside the university, I think you have to re-examine whether or not you're going to allow those students to remain as students. And otherwise, I think you have to have criminal enforcement to make sure that these things don't happen again. I have very little patience uh, with anybody trying to basically bully their way through anybody else. If somebody wants to ask a hard question, I think that's perfectly appropriate. But inside the universities, it's not the First Amendment that governs so much. What it is, is it's the rules of the establishment which is running the place. These are private property situations. Somebody who comes in in conscious violation of the rules is a trespasser and should be treated as such. And that meant either expelled or punished for it. Um, Within the university, There are all sorts of nuances uh, that don't fit the paradigm of the way in which we deal with streets, uh, with speech on public streets. Robert's rules of orders apply. They're decorum. Certain people can speak at certain times. Others can speak afterwards. We spend an enormous amount of time in universities trying to fine-tune these rules at every level. And no single individual from the outside should ever be permitted to disrupt them. You've spent decades in higher education. You're currently affiliated with NYU and the University of Chicago. You're obviously a Hoover Fellow, which leads to a fair amount of time on the Stanford campus, and you regularly lecture at any number of campuses across the country and around the world. To what extent, Richard, in the course of your career, have you seen the general intellectual climate on college campuses change? Well, it, it's, this is something which tends to cycle a little bit. When I first started teaching in 1968, I made a remark at the faculty meeting at the University of Southern California Law School, which is if I wanted to debate the merits of the American invasion in Asia and if I wanted to figure out how to use force at Kent State, what I would have done was to either join the FBI or the Foreign Service. Uh, but I'm just an academic and I don't think that we should allow ourselves to be taken over. And at USC in 1970, it got sufficiently tense that Norman Topping, who was a doctor but a very shrewd man, at the end of the spring of 1970, said he was going to allow people who didn't want to take final exams not to take them because the protests were so intense. And what he said uh, privately, and I think it was right, is he says, if I don't do this, they're going to continue to protest because they haven't been able to keep up on their studies. If I give them this out, they'll take a pass-fail and they'll go to the beach, and in the fall we could restore some degree of order, which is what he did. And then after that, I think there was a period of relative calm. Not always. Um, probably, certainly, there was agitation through Watergate. Under Reagan, there was certain kinds of agitation on the left, but I don't think they mounted too much. There was, of course, the free speech movement in Berkeley in the 60s, uh, which got pretty raw. And then we had a period of general era of good feelings. Uh, What I think is striking about the current situation is it seems to be a little bit more ugly, a little bit more determined, a little bit more intolerant. And I think that's a reflection of something which we all have to be very uneasy about, which is the death of the American center. I used to think, although I'm not necessarily there, uh, that the heart of America lay essentially with slightly center-left policies, which meant market institutions to create wealth and a safe 
safety net to make sure that you don't leave stragglers behind. Not my perfect position, but I could live with it. Today, the center is gone, and you see people going further to the right and further going to the left. There's more frustration because the economic pie is shrinking. So given the political division on the one hand and the reduction in wealth and prospects on the other, we see too much anger, and we have to stop it. Unfortunately, I don't see the president as the man to do this because he often engages in the kind of hyperbolic and some hysterical statements which actually lead to the uh, continuation of the provokes and the Charlie. One real improvement I think that should be mentioned is police behavior, which was often terrible in the early days, is much better. I knew a number of people who went to the Chicago Democratic Convention in 1968, and the violence and the police overreaction was legendary. I live in New York City when I'm here next to Trump Towers, and there are lots of demonstrations there, and the police are completely professional in the way in which they cordon people off and organize the situation. And I think they've gone an enormous way in order to improve it. Uh, so I think while the political situation is more unstable, I think the professional responses to it have actually improved from what they were 50 years ago. There is some debate on the right as to whether conservatives and libertarians, people who feel like the atmosphere on college campuses is overtly hostile to them, should be fighting back and trying to get more parity on these campuses, whether that's in terms of faculty hires or speakers or student groups or whether they should just be trying to build their own set of parallel institutions. So Hillsdale College in Michigan, for instance, is the sort of the classic example of an institution that was really designed for more of a conservative or libertarian student body. Where do you come down in that debate, Richard? Well, my view about this is decentralized decisions in which people take either one or both of the alternatives or some mix behind them is appropriate. Hillsdale is a shining example. I could testify to its success because the number of students I've had as research assistants who've come from there and have been totally superb is really quite wonderful. One of my best research assistants right now is the Hillsdale product, and you could not ask for better by way of somebody with temperament, decorum, and everything else. It's also the that on the think tank circle, generally speaking, the libertarian stuff is more rigorous and more persuasive than the left-wing analogs. Uh, you just go to Washington and there's foundation after foundation, CEI, AEI, Cato, and the rest, which do these things. You come to a place like Manhattan and you have the Manhattan Institute. I'm a member of the Hoover Institution, which is not so much a think tank, but it certainly has an orientation. And I think these kinds of places have done extremely well. Um, but on the other hand, I think it would be a terrible mistake stake to say that, well, uh, since we've got these alternative outlets, we want to make sure that it's okay to have classrooms which are 98% taught by faculty on the left or far left. And so I think one tries to push there for intellectual diversity. And I think in some cases, um, this is beginning to take hold. Ironically, I think many of the faculties, like the Middlebury faculty, which was kind of horrified of what happened, realizes that to the extent that they are seeing this kind of intolerance, it would be well advised for them to put students in the position where they actually have teachers with whom they disagree and they have to learn how to disagree intelligently back with their faculty members. So I think in a strange way, it may well be that we will start to see a few more conservative people uh, being hired. Um, I don't think it's very hard to tell the difference between liberal and conservative because one of the things that's happened recently 
is that the theorized positions that faculty members have are much more explicit than they used to be. When I started out in 1968, most people were kind of, you know, Eisenhower Republicans or Eisenhower Democrats. We've got this new deal. Let's tweak it here. Let's tweak it here. And on we go. And I was one of the first people who actually said, no, you know, there's a really high stakes principled issue here. Then I wrote my book on takings, declared the New Deal unconstitutional, was, uh, shall we say, reviled for that. But I do think that there's more coherence on the right and more coherence on the left. And as people become more coherent, they become, in fact, a little bit more to shift because they just don't have to give up this, that, or the other case. They have to rethink their own worldview. And so what we have to do is to remember on this point, left and right should agree. The fact that I take offense at what you say is no more important than you taking offense at what I say. And the last thing we want in a world is for us to get really irate at the other person says so that we could take the law into our old hands. As the First Amendment's scholars have said, both on the left and the right, the fact that you take great offense at what I have said is no ground for you to shut it down, to heckle it, or to do anything else. And if we could agree on that principle, on how important it is to know the ways in which to disagree, we may be able to mend the fabric of a country, which now seems to be in need of some repair. So final question, what would you say to right of center students who feel embattled on their campuses or for that matter to future Richard Epstein's right of center scholars who are aspiring to a career in academia in what seems like a somewhat hostile environment? How would you suggest that folks like that navigate these waters? Well, I mean, you move on all margins simultaneously. We had a meeting at the Federal Society in New York City at which I spoke, and one of the speakers there was my colleague, Mike McConnell, who's actually a former student of mine and a great Stanford law professor, and he gets up there and he says, you know, you march into the dean's office and you say, why is it that you don't have more events of this particular sort? How come it is that if you look down to the contributions that the faculty makes to political campaigns, there are 175 on the left and two on the right. Don't you think you really ought to try to do something like that and then try to get other organizations in? Um, One of the things I've done, just to put a plug in, is with my colleague in the economics department at NYU, Mario Rizzo, we formed the Classical Liberal Institute. And the name suggests the kind of things that we're about. Uh, We try to get affiliates. We try to help people get placement into teaching jobs. We try to run a whole variety of conferences of one sort or another. But when we run the CLI, the one thing that we don't do is engage in overt political activities of one kind or another. Um, we regard ourselves as an academic institution, and if we can raise the profile of conservative and libertarian intellectuals in the eyes of the rest of the academy, we may be able to persuade people that we have something of value that we can offer. And so I think other places should do that. McConnell himself runs a constitutional law center at the Stanford Law School, and there should be other organizations like that. I mean, I have to give a thank to all the foundations that have helped me through this, the Koch Foundation, the Searle Foundation, the Bradley Foundation, and the Liberty Fund and so forth have all been wonderful, but the source of their greatness to us is they trust in us and they leave us alone after they give us the money so that we can do our work in the way in which we think to be appropriate. And I would love to see more centers like that forming elsewhere. Randy Barnett formed one at Georgetown just recently, and we need to have others of a similar inclination being formed around the country. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column entitled The Libertarian by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.